0: Hello. What are you doing here? Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> Take two. Hello. What are you doing here? Anything the matter?
1: I've come to say goodbye. We're going away.
0: What on earth are you talking about? It's true.
1: I won't whisper. It's true. We're going now and I was afraid I wouldn't see you again.
0: Where is she taking you to?
1: New York. I don't I don't want to go. I shall hate it. I shall be
0: miserable. I'll dress in here. I shan't be long. Which would you prefer, New York or Manderley?
1: <laughs> What's the name of again?
0: Which would you prefer, New York or Manderley?
1: Oh, please don't joke about it. Mrs. Van Hopper's waiting. And I, I'd, I'd better say goodbye now.
0: I repeat what I said. Either you go to America with Mrs. Van Hopper, or you come home to Manderley with me.
1: You mean you want a secretary or something?
0: I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Wall.
0: And I am Cole Rollane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we ultimately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. For our inaugural episode, it will be Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has in store for us.
1: So our first film to kick off this podcast is Rebecca from 1940. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, produced by David O. Selznick, starring Joan Fontaine, Laurence Olivier, George Sanders, Judith Anderson, and a ton of other recognizable British faces. If you've ever seen more than two films from America or England from the 30s, 40s, or 50s, you will probably recognize a lot of people in the film anyway. So I chose this film... To kick off this podcast, it's the first thing that came to mind for me when we started talking about this idea, and that's because I have such a clear memory of when I saw this movie, how I came to find it, and the many times that I've seen it over the years, and I have seen it many times since then, has not dimmed or diminished the love I have for this film.
0: Where did you see it for the first time?
1: The first time I saw it was at the Grandin Theater in Roanoke, Virginia. And I came to this film the way I've come to so many films in my life, especially when I was younger, and that was through my mother. She loves this movie, and she happened to see in the paper that they were hosting this revival of the film, and she took me to see it. I was 10 years old. I was really excited. It was my first... Uh, Revival in a theater, my first black and white in the theater, my first big screen experience of anything like that um, outside of maybe Disney films, I think, from from being a a younger viewer.
0: What was the Grandin Theater like?
1: It was... I hesitate to say it was a movie palace because it was a small Roanoke, Virginia version of a movie palace that we couldn't really afford to have there. (laughs) So it was a holdover. It's been there for a long time and is still there. Please go. If you're anywhere near the area, go visit them. I remember walking into the lobby and it was all of these things that I'd been seeing with my mother through the years kind of come to life. It would have, they had the old movie posters and stills and things seemed to be sort of black and white and deco. And I'm not sure if they actually were, but that's my memory of walking into this theater. And the other thing that struck me was that the, the, the movie itself was on kind of a smaller screen than I was used to, not those big multiplex, large, large, large screens. So it felt like a really intimate experience. It was more like being in a black box theater for me than being in some sort of big, large, impersonal space. And so it was just us and a few other people. I don't remember it being attended by a big audience, and that felt really special and exciting to me. I was 10... It was a big, fun night out that nobody else in my neighborhood was excited about doing, but I was because of my mother. So I have a lot of memories about this film and how I got wrapped up in the viewing of it, and I fell for every moment of it, hook, line, and sinker. And there are a lot of things that I want to talk about theme-wise and performance, but first I want to hear, do you have a specific memory about watching this the first time?
0: I wasn't lucky enough to see it in a theater the first time. I came to it on home video the first time, and it was early on in coming to Hitchcock for me. I had only seen probably Psycho and Strangers on a Train at that point, and this was so distinctly different from those two that it felt a world away from anything that I associated with him. This felt much more like a ghost story a sort of gothic ghost story minus elements of the supernatural, I guess. The other major difference would be that I was much older than you were the initial time I saw it. I was in my early 20s, so I am curious about what it felt like to a 10-year-old. What did you observe, and how did it feel? What did it leave you feeling like when you left the theater that day?
1: Well, it's changed a lot for me. I think that's a good thing. When I... When I first walked out of the theater, I, it was that shock of walking back into daylight from a black and white experience, which I, I still is fun for me mm-hmm. and still is shocking, how much then and now I could fall so deeply into the tone of the movie. And the tone is is really significant with Rebecca. Like you mentioned before, Gothic is the thing that's, that stands out to me. I was a young person. I was watching an a ad, very adult story. There's nothing young, or even to me now, though it didn't seem like it then. I don't find that that it's a romantic film. Oh, not at all. Which I did then, and so what does that say about? Was that my age? Was that being an impressionable person thinking? Oh, it's a at it, uh, it surface, it's a young woman falling in love with an, an older man, falling into this life that she has not created for herself. Um, it's a whirlwind romance to a degree, but that's not romantic.
0: Isn't it appropriate, though, that it made you feel that way, considering that your naivete possibly mirrored hers?
1: I think so, and so when I look back on it now, I see so much of her performance when then I think I was just living the story through her eyes. I was experiencing it as she was Uh, and I I had that immediate sense of um, being so swept up in the story and the location even though it's not really filmed on location but so swept up in the story and Manderly itself and how powerful and forceful Laurence Olivier and then Judith Anderson are. So not to belabor what I thought about it as a very young person but what occurs to me so much now is that question again back to this is not really a romantic film but if you look through other reviews or other writings about it romantic is the word that gets thrown around most actually but I won't argue with that necessarily but one thing I did want to ask you about when you watch it now or when you watched it then as a 20 year old person did it seem like love to you?
0: Oh not at all Okay, not at all I felt sorry for her most of the time. There are one or two instances when she starts to assert herself that you can really root for her. But for the most part, it's kind of a pathetic performance. And it's intentionally so. She does an incredible job with the hunched shoulders and seeming so mousy and easily led and easily manipulated. But no, it it definitely did not seem romantic at all.
1: Why do you think that occurs to so many people? Just watching it at a surface level?
0: Absolutely. It's so grand for one thing. Yes. is uh, probably the thing that people are responding to the most. When you just look at the components of it, it's a classic template for a romantic story. Rich widower sweeps young innocent girl off of, off her feet, takes her back to the estate where they will live and ha, live happily ever after, ideally. Um, but that's completely ignoring all the very specifics of this, all the very specific circumstances of this story.
1: It, you know, something that just occurred to me is the idea of marriage equals love. I think that's another shortcut that many of us might have taken watching the film again and oh well he's proposed to her, therefore love and it's not about that whatsoever and I think that idea uh, again blowing apart the sense that it is a romantic story I I'm read the book many years ago so I don't have a I'm sure I don't have an extremely faithful memory or accurate memory of it but I think in the book it's much clearer that it's a colder situation that she's walking into. It's not we're in love with each other and everything's going to be great. So I think the I think the book really spells that theme out pretty clearly. And then there also have been other versions of it, some of which I've seen, and one particular version was a BBC television version and the age difference in the characters was pretty significant and I think that that makes it a little bit clearer it it brings out her issues with her dead father and she's a little bit more of a caretaker and so i think that the book and these other adaptations of the story really highlight those those complicated relationships those complicated themes that the film might gloss over a bit
0: and the film diverges from the book in a couple of significant ways and here's where the haze code starts to rear its ugly head The Motion Picture Production Code, otherwise known as the Hays Code, named after its uh, first enforcer, Will Hays, former postmaster general and former Republican National Committee chairman, began in 1927, at which point it was still voluntary, and it didn't really get serious until Joseph Breen, rabid anti-Semite, was appointed in 1934, and Breen was a serious hardliner. Among the things that were not allowed in uh, any Hollywood film produced from 1934, technically until 1968, when the code was retired in favor of the first MPAA rating system, were things like uh, No Profanity, No Nudity. Bummer. No illegal drugs. Damn it. No white slavery, mm. specifically white slavery.
1: But regular slavery. Of A- course. Okay.
0: No problem. Yeah. Hey, D.W. Griffith. Actually, which was pre-code, so no problem. Yeah. No interracial relationships. Mm-hmm. No venereal disease. No scenes of childbirth. No ridiculing clergy. And no sex perversion.
1: Which is a huge bummer. The biggest bummer of all, I think. That's why pre-code movies are super fun.
0: Yeah, Hollywood was way more fun prior to Joseph Green's arrival. Yes. Um, But the ways that that impacts Rebecca are notable. It's it's notable in two ways. The first one being that in the book, uh, Rebecca's death is a murder. Maxim outright kills her. She manipulates him into killing her, but it is murder.
1: So, like, in the in the film, she manipulates him into an act of violence that still sort of comes off as an accident in the end, and he covers it up. Right. He covers it up. and But it's just straight-up moiter in the book. Right.
0: And, yeah. In the film, it places as an accident that he then has to cover up because no one would believe his crazy story. Right. But in the book, it is definitely cold-blooded murder. Yeah.
1: No one would believe that she was a huge nymphomaniac sociopath, (laughs) which then brings us to the second piece. Right,
0: the sex perversion, or at least what was considered sex perversion then, which plays itself out in the film through Mrs. Danvers with distinct lesbian overtones, which were obviously not allowed by the production code, um... In the book, she is a considerably older character, much more maternal, much less jilted lover. And, of course, in the film, she dies because every LGBT character in Hollywood prior to 1970-something had to die. Right.
1: And so those scenes of her stroking the lingerie and talking about brushing her hair and staying up late for her at night and being so involved in her... In her life and her stories, in Rebecca's life and in Rebecca's stories.
0: And Hitchcock would regularly put material in just so that the censors would have something to take out.
1: Mm. Additional material.
0: Right. That way it would deflect attention from the thing that he definitely (laughs) wanted to keep. Yes. And there was, uh, it was, it's reputed that some of that happened with the Rebecca screenplay. There are things, they wanted to take the. Uh, the lesbian overtones even further and the censorship board cut those things out cut them back to where they are now which in retrospect are extremely obvious.
1: Yes. Now, two things I want to talk about. First off with Judith Anderson, Mrs. Danvers' uh, performance and I, there, well, it's not really a question it's more of a point that there's the moment when they are in the doctor's <laughs> office you do you laughing? not have a question, <laughs>
0: do you not have a question, but a comment?
1: I have, I have a comment. <laughs> yes, I have a comment. I don't care what you think about this part. Um, so focusing on Judith Anderson's performance for a second and the overall character of Mrs. Danvers, I think there there have been so many parodies since then that, that, Take the easy route of making Mrs. Danvers look like a wild-eyed lunatic through the whole film. But there's one moment that's my absolute favorite for her character in which she is completely caught off guard. That she doesn't know something that Rebecca had done. And that's such a human moment. And I think it gives the lie to that concept that she's just crazy throughout the whole thing. I think it's that moment where she breaks Definitely, but I, I love that soft human moment for her. I think it's such a rounded performance, actually.
0: So, do you have any sympathy for Rebecca as a character?
1: <sighs> My first response is no. Um, it's, well, no, actually no, yes, no, yes, maybe, <laughs> as an adult that she clearly couldn't live the way she wanted to, whatever that was. I don't know what her, I don't know exactly what Rebecca's pathology was. I made a joke earlier, sociopath, and nymphomaniac. I, I have no idea she could, have been asexual pansexual which I also wonder about George Sanders but going back to Rebecca I don't know what her pathology was but she clearly wasn't happy in this role that she was born into and I don't think any choice afterwards made her happy uh she couldn't love anyone possibly that's a question I don't know so I have some I can't say empathy I don't know is it sympathy for her? I don't know the answer to that. I hope it's not A empathy. little bit. Yeah.
0: Because <laughs> I don't want to live here with a little I do. <laughs> so, which your Miss Danvers point made me think of that yes. because the question I have after that is then, did she manipulate Mrs Danvers the most of all?
1: At 100%. Yes.
0: Oh, well, that was awesome. Problems? Done. Wrapped up. Case closed. Case close.
1: marked. <laughs> I don't, I don't need any further comments about that I, I, I think so I think Mrs. Danvers had the clearest idea she thought of who Rebecca was and just thought that she saw her completely as herself and then finds later this big key piece of information that completely breaks her world apart well I'm, I'm going to ask you the same question do you at any point have sympathy for Rebecca or empathy for that matter
0: Neither one, neither one I think she was a terrible person Yes. from all indications I think if you made the film today it would be Gone Girl and everyone in it would either be Spoiler
1: alert, I still haven't seen Gone Girl (laughs) Whoops
0: (laughs) Um, Everyone in it would either be a terrible person or a complete sociopath a murderous Sociopath. I don't. I. I don't feel any empathy or sympathy for Rebecca's character. And I agree. She absolutely manipulated Danvers the most the of The most. All, if M- only because of the amount of time they spent together. If yes. only because the cumulative quantity of manipulation made it so thorough that the only way to escape it was the grave.
1: I mean, truly, I think if maximum had if maximum if maximum? I think I think if maximum Max I think if Maxim had been paying attention at any moment, he probably could he... have seen through it, don't you think?
0: What was he paying attention to?
1: Her butt. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Hey,
0: uh, Rebecca. <laughs> nice <lady laughs>
1: else. That's all I can think of, or what she was going to do for him.
0: What could she have done? The reflected,
1: reflected glory could be, yeah,
0: trophy wife.
1: Trophy wife. I do want to follow my my question, uh, and this is open for comment. Is uh, George Sanders was George Sanders asexual or pansexual?
0: Omnisexual. Okay. I would think.
1: No, I'm not worldly enough to know the difference between pansexual and omnisexual.
0: Well, pansexual is not limited in sexual choice with regard to biological sex, gender, or gender identity. Okay. Whereas omnisexual is characterized by a diverse sexual propensity.
1: Nailed it. Yeah.
0: He would. uh, Omni. Doesn't matter. No rules, just right.
1: That's (laughs) Sorry, I'm back. Yeah. That's why I would still bang him. Right. If he were alive, he, he'd show today. you a blooming onion. <laughs> I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Look it up on Urban Dictionary. <laughs> oh, don't don't, don't. don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the direction itself and Alfred Hitchcock and some notes that I made.
0: Uh, coincidentally enough, Hitchcock is an excellent choice for us to kick this off with this month because it's also Hitchcock's birthday. Oh, in I didn't August. realize that. Yeah, okay. August 13th.
1: Maybe I did know that.
0: Is his birthday. Fabulous. And he would have been 116 years old.
1: My goodness.
0: So happy birthday, Alfred Hitchcock.
1: Wherever you are.
0: Sorry about the blooming Onion. <laughs> you were saying.
1: <laughs> I was saying. I don't remember what I was saying. I was talking about direction. Right. And some things that occurred to me in the last time that we saw it, where I was really trying to pay a little bit more close attention of, of choices and people and performances. The things that occurred to me are how often he's using uh, medium close-ups. So, for me, it really emphasized how there were very few times in the film where people were actually close together. Physical proximity. For the most part, they had a great amount of space between right. them. And I really, enjoyed, I really enjoyed seeing that.
0: It underscores how every single relationship is chilly and distant and the, the in fact the only intimate moment or the most intimate moment I should say wh- shot in a really tight close up is the scene where Danvers is whispering in her ear trying to convince her to jump out of the window yes and it's the most seductive moment in the entire film
1: Well, besides when she's fingering Rebecca's panties all over the place. Or was that just me?
0: I don't think that was (laughs) intended to seduce as much as intimidate. Okay. Or as much as she didn't know anyone else was in the room.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: Or didn't care.
1: Okay. And... There's something that I had read, and I think actually my mother was the person who told me this, and this could be entirely apocryphal, but it is in various production notes when you go on the wiki page and the IMD page that to get that performance, to quote unquote get that performance from Joan Fontaine, Alfred Hitchcock told her that everyone on the set hated her. And she was not first, second, third, fourth, or fifth choice for the film. That she was terrible. That she was doing a terrible job. There was something about her birthday happened. And I think that he had everybody forget or put the wrong name of the cake. I could be making this entire thing up. But I have some memory about a
0: Hang on a second. Are you telling me that Alfred Hitchcock in any way mistreated his lead actresses?
1: No, I wasn't there. But... There have been stories.
0: Well, Olivier wasn't too keen on her either. Right. Because he wanted his wife, Vivian Lee, for the part. And she was even screen tested. And she was so inappropriate for yes. the role that when George Cougar saw the screen test, he literally howled yeah. with laughter. It was so off the mark that it was unbelievable.
1: The One of the most beautiful women... Ever is going to uh, play the part of this mousy little nothing.
0: Well, Joan Fontaine's no slouch.
1: No, but they do a great she does a great job of hiding that and cowering in. And I can't imagine Vivian Lee hiding her light under a barrel. Neither could whatever. George Cougar. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, maybe the manipulation wasn't manipulation so much as uh, straight up telling her the truth <laughs> at least from Laurence Olivier's perspective that he didn't want her there
0: yeah he never treated me that way no no
1: what film were you in with him
0: well one time Larry said to me That's, I've never told you that. I can't believe I've never told you this no, story
1: no I didn't know this when
0: I was young because he, I think he died when I was 18
1: okay so what were you, what were you 14 or 15 oh so 10 or 11 10 or 11 Lil. okay young
0: Little, one summer I went to uh, Larry Olivier's little thespians camp.
1: <laughs> right,
0: and he pulled me close, and he said, "Real close." Whoa, he smelled like really? lilacs. Whoa, I think so. It was those just, stories are true. I think too? it was just his handkerchief. Okay, okay. He said, "Son," he thought of me like a son. I can't believe I've never told you this story.
1: I can't believe it either.
0: He he said, "Never forget." Whenever possible, wear a fake nose.
1: <laughs> that it is so true. That is so true.
0: When you put on the nose, you feel like a completely different person. Yes, it's yes. very freeing.
1: Yes. Ask. Uh, I already was it Jose Ferrer or Bill Ferrer who was in uh, both. Sierra Why Nome? not both? <laughs> okay, ask them. They know what's up. Right. They know the score. So oh, we were talking Lawrence about Lawrence Olivier. Olivier. Right. because up to this point. We've been gabbing about Rebecca this whole time, and we have not talked about Sir Laurence Olivier. Right.
0: Pretty big deal.
1: Pretty big deal. I thought he was pretty handsome when I saw this.
0: Eh, he's an effete and impudent snob.
1: Okay. All right. I don't think I knew the word effete when I was 10. <laughs> Maybe if I had, I would have said, oh, Lawrence Olivier. Right. To a T.
0: No, I, I, I have nothing against the man.
1: Overrated, you think, in general?
0: No, uh, uh, certainly not for the stage work that he did. Okay. Um, he was just always a little stiff for me Okay. in the film work, which in this case works just works fine. Works
1: really well. And another thing about the direction and acting choices, the thing that stuck out to me was he never quite looks at her. When he's talking to her, there are a couple of moments where, okay, maybe he's actually made eye contact. Otherwise, I just always envision it as he's kind of looking over her shoulder all the time. And she has to move around a little bit to to, uh, to get get in his sight. And I think that works really well for this film, too. So... One thing that I think is maybe a little bit of a bone of contention for the two of us, uh, the use of miniatures in the film. He used, Hitchcock uses miniatures in many of his films, and they never look realistic to me. And he actually argued with David O. Selznick and convinced him that, yes, the use of miniatures is a great choice here. And for some reason... They they use the miniatures and you're okay with that.
0: I love the miniatures. Why In do you like every them? single film? I don't care. Lady Vanishes, doesn't matter. Yeah. I love the miniatures no matter what. Um
1: Do you like the little mini pine trees? I love too? the mini pine trees. On the train on the train track set.
0: And That's the exactly what people. it is. That is exactly what it is. It comes it stems from having uh, toy trains and having having built villages and okay, it, it yeah aesthetically as far as how it functions in the film, it might take you right out of it, but it is uh, it's magical. It's like Christmas to me to see okay. those miniatures every time. All it right. does not matter how fake they look. Godzilla could come stomping through them <laughs> any second. Yeah, I have no problem with the use of the miniatures. They okay. are they are somewhat magical to me in okay. that regard. All right, they're they're fun every time to see them because of them. I enjoy the level of craftsmanship it took to make them. Um, I don't know exactly if it achieves the effect Hitchcock intended, but it's pleasing to my eye every time.
1: I'm glad it's pleasing to your eye. I. Do you think it was pleasing to his? I, I really struggle with that because he was so exacting otherwise and would create techniques to make happen what was in his vision. I think... I, don't, I, I can't imagine he looked at that or maybe... I can't imagine he looked at that and thought, yes, that's exactly what I want. Or that he thought, Ugh, that's the best that we can do.
0: No, I think it quite clearly pleased his eye or he would not have left it in there.
1: And use it in several other films, too. Okay. All right.
0: Speaking of miniatures... Yes. ...and the house, we haven't talked at all about what a prominent character the house itself is in the film, and I specifically was going to ask you that were we to ever have an estate, a sprawling estate... What would you want to name our estate?
1: Well, now I want to name it a feat and snobbish. That's that's what occurs to me first. But in that same line, I would choose something French, obviously, because I am a feat and snobbish for all things French. Maybe something like, this is way more melancholy than I feel or would ever feel. Maybe after you were dead, this would be the name of my <laughs> estate. Maybe it would be...
0: L'amour perdu. Translation?
1: I, so I've, I'm not sure it's the exact translation, but Lost Love.
0: Ah, uh-huh, I see.
1: Otherwise, I don't know, Windy Corners, like in... Uh...
0: Well, I have a list of potential candidates. <laughs> okay. I want to run these by right. you and see what you think.
1: Little Thespians?
0: No, we're off that. That's right out.
1: Lake, Lake Little Thespians? <laughs> okay. Go Shoot, go ahead.
0: The Grassy Knoll. Too soon?
1: Is it on grassy Knoll? It could be. Can you see one?
0: It's quite possibly. Okay.
1: All right. There's one.
0: Old Pickler's Hill.
1: Are you the pickler in this scenario? I think you would be. Okay. All right.
0: You would also be old. I also
1: just had a pickle. Right. So it's appropriate. (laughs) I'm I'm old before we can afford to have this huge estate. Okay. All right.
0: Ham Landing. All of these won't have food in them, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, what's this thing no against the ham part?
0: It's. Can you picture it? Okay. That you, hams are landing? Yes. Okay.
1: Think All about right. it. All right. Okay. It, okay.
0: You're standing out, looking out over acres of your. <laughs> peering out over acres of your waving fields of alfalfa. Right. And what's that? Plummeting big, from the sky.
1: A big ham? A ham. Is it wrapped up in um, foil with a little netting around it?
0: It could be, but it probably wouldn't make as satisfying a sound as if it was just Ugh. a ham.
1: Okay. Right. Ham Landing. This week on Ham Landing. <laughs> ham. Charles Nelson Riley. Ham Landing. Ham landing. <laughs> had a very special episode of Ham Landing. Okay. Ham Landing. I'm not crazy about okay. these so far, I have to be honest. How
0: about Arvern Glee? <laughs>
1: even know what the hell that is.
0: You you don't have to. You just have to live there.
1: Can that be our firstborn son, though, that that we will never have?
0: Could be. Um, Narrow Bottom Steading.
1: I like that one. I didn't like anything with bottom in the name.
0: (laughs) Now we're talking.
1: Now, I gave you one, uh, the name of my estate after your uh, timely or untimely death. What about the estate that you're going to be looking at on when I am long since past and you're waiting for your next wife with my underwear, initialed underwear, and drawers? What's What's the name of that estate?
0: That would be Manderley. <laughs> That's
1: a lot.
0: <laughs> Just because I'm old and widowed. Right. Hey.
1: Ask uh, Jose or Mel Ferrer. They know. What, they know what's right.
0: up. How about Barn Bay Farn?
1: Do you have to pronounce that like? Farn. It is a. It's. It, like you're in a dialect. Barn lab. Bay Farn. But, <laughs> I think that's Farn. my fa- I think that's my favorite one.
0: How about something classier? Okay.
1: Like... It has to be classier than any of those.
0: Benedict Cumberbatch.
1: Okay. Beautiful. You like that He's going to be in my, your untimely death cabin with me. You
0: didn't hear me. I said Bernadette (laughs) (laughs) Bum.
1: It's beautiful. Thank you. I think it is a British name, actually. Bum. Yeah. That's got to be.
0: You would think so. Okay, if you're going to make your case to the listener that has not seen the film yet, what would you tell them? What would be the reasons that you recommend the film?
1: I keep coming back to the word gothic. Uh, I think it was a perfect way into Hitchcock for a young person. I think a good mystery never gets old. And I think that a film that's so beautifully acted and has such a wonderful Gothic tone is something worth watching. You have actors uh, for the most part, sort of at the either the beginning or the early, early middle part of their Hollywood careers. Never better. You've got a wonderful supporting cast like I mentioned before, with all sorts of recognizable faces doing great work in here. It's a terrific script. They make really interesting choices with the plot. And for me, as a young person, all of the twists and turns were totally unexpected. Now, as an adult, maybe not. But I completely fell into the story and was delighted to do so.
0: And if you had to briefly explain the story...
1: So I found a brief synopsis that I think takes out a lot of the editorializing. It doesn't focus on it being romantic or not romantic, so I'll just read it. A young bride is haunted by the specter of her husband's dead wife. Now that's a movie I want to see. Yeah. That sounds great. Immediately. Yes.
0: And where in the Hitchcock pantheon does this rank for you?
1: That's a really tough one for me. Because... Because there are so many great choices now, I think this is high up on my list because it's the first one that I came to. I think you never forget those those first memories. But I also love a film that you mentioned earlier, which is The Lady Vanishes. That those two are my are my favorites. Now, I think of the the Psychos and the Rear Windows and the Vertigos as almost just a completely different body of work. So maybe I should separate it from early period, Hollywood period, later period. And if I had my druthers, which I do, it's my choice, I would probably pick different ones from all of those eras.
0: Well, this is the pivotal one, though, in that case, since you mentioned his later career and everything, as this was his first Hollywood film, the first one he made after he came over from England.
1: It's his first Hollywood film and notably won Best Picture and Best Cinematography. Now, Alfred Hitchcock never won, famously never won, an Academy Award for Best Direction. So this was pretty close.
0: And he also dismissed the Oscar that this film won for Best Picture, essentially saying that it was not worthy. Really? Uh, Other interesting things of note, in addition to being his first American film, it was also one of three... Adaptations of Daphne Du Maurier's source material that he made, the first one being Jamaica Inn, which she hated. It strayed too far from the original material for her liking, so much so that she refused to write Rebecca's screenplay. He then made Rebecca, which is the most faithful, thanks to. The benzedrine fueled meddling of David O. Selznick, right. because he said we bought Rebecca, we're going to make Rebecca, and then of course the birds, which also took a considerable number of liberties with the source material as well.
1: I have read the birds. Have you read the birds? No. Yes, it's 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 like an Audubon field guide compared to the film. It <laughs> doesn't have any, it doesn't have anything to do except there are birds in it.
0: And it's interesting that Du Maurier was so particular about the source material and remaining faithful to it, because it's alleged that Rebecca was seriously plagiarized. There was a Brazilian novel written by a woman named Carolina Nabucco in 1934 called The Successor that... Rebecca's plot mirrored exactly. Entire passages of dialogue seemed almost identical. Really? So much so that um, when Rebecca, when the film finally opened in Brazil, United Artists went to Nabucco and tried to get her to sign an agreement that says any similarities between the two are entirely coincidental and she would not bud. She wouldn't sign. They tried to buy her off. She wouldn't take the money. So, DeMaurier's got a little splaining to do.
1: As we come to the end of the show, we wanted to leave you with some suggestions of places to go next.
0: So, we're each going to make one recommendation.
1: This is difficult I only want because, to do one. All oh right, Dang it. Because I was... <laughs> I, I, of course, went off on many tangents and chose different ones for different actors. And so I've got a whole slew of recommendations. But if you're telling me that I only have one, this is a lot of pressure. And I'm, I know I'm going to regret it the second that I say it. I'll think of 20 more. But I'm going to go back to one I mentioned earlier and say go to The Lady Vanishes next. Even though it came earlier in the filmography, I love it. I want everybody in the universe to see it.
0: So you are staying with Alfred Hitchcock for your recommendation and I am going to stay with Daphne du Maurier for mine. My recommendation would be my favorite adaptation of her work, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now from 1973 with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. It is a harrowing psychological thriller and one of the most incisive portraits of the grieving process that I've ever seen on screen. It's really fantastic. I
1: think those are two great recommendations from a great film, and I really hope that this either got you excited to go find Rebecca yourself or got you excited to revisit Rebecca. That's what we hope to do with these podcasts.
0: So thanks for listening to this first episode of The Magic Lantern. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page for the podcast at facebook.com slash magiclanternpodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. Feel free to tweet about the show, tell your friends. And you will be able to find all of our episodes, including other supplemental material and other things of interest, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Cole Rolane,
1: And I'm Erica Long. And this was the Magic Lantern Podcast.